It can be really hard for us to relax at night. We're always thinking about covering crime. But the good news is our wonderful new sponsor, Via, has a terrific product that helps us unwind. Via Hemp has a wide range of terrific gummies of both the THC and THC-free varieties. They can help you with focus, recovery, sleep, creativity, or just plain enjoyment. These products legally ship to all 50 states. I really liked Zen in particular. This is a yummy blueberry option that lets you catch a chill sleep with help from CBN and CBD. It's really helped me turn off my brain and settle down for the night. I also got a shout out Flow State. It helped me feel energized throughout the day. Like not to brag, but I got a lot done. I'm talking about doing several interviews and editing a whole show from start to finish, not to mention jumping on some of the latest filings in the cases we cover. It really made me feel sharp and ready to tackle any challenge. I couldn't recommend this more. Via has so many great gummy options to choose from. Everything from guava berry low dose that allows you to microdose THC to the chill-inducing Delta 9 gummy dreams. Head to viahemp.com and use code MSHEET to receive 15% off and one free sample of their award-winning gummies. That's viahemp.com and use code MSHEET at checkout. Please support our show and tell them we sent you. Enhance your every day with Via Hemp. Again, if you're 21 and over, you can get 15% off plus a free pack of award-winning gummies with our exclusive code, msheet at viahemp.com. That's V-I-I-A-H-E-M-P dot com. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Content warning. This episode discusses the murder of two young girls. People have a lot of questions about what's been happening in the Delphi case. What does it mean that Kagan Klein was temporarily transferred into the custody of the Indiana State Police? Is it possible Kagan Klein has made some sort of deal with prosecutors? Why would prosecutors even consider making a deal? Why did it take so long to arrest Kagan Klein after the raid on his home in 2017? And what about that probable cause affidavit to search Ron Logan's property? Does that mean Logan is guilty? We decided to go to the experts to get some answers. So we turned to two familiar figures in the true crime space. Brett and Alice have a great deal of experience in criminal law and co-host The Prosecutors, a popular podcast where they break down true crime cases in a fascinating and accessible way. We've always really appreciated the terrific legal analysis they apply to the cases they discuss. That is why we decided we really wanted to talk with them about the recent developments in Delphi. My name is Anya Kane. And I'm Kevin Greenlaw. And this is The Murder Sheet, a weekly true crime podcast. Anya and I connected over the Burger Chef murders, a 1978 unsolved case involving the killings of four young restaurant employees. Now we're looking to track restaurant homicides. To help us understand the patterns of these crimes, we created a spreadsheet of nearly a thousand eatery-related killings, The Murder Sheet. We'll be drawing on that data throughout Season 1 to give you a deep dive into undercovered crimes. We're the Murder Sheet. And this is The Delphi Murders, a conversation with the prosecutors.
So, okay, one one facet of this situation that we've been reporting on that I think a lot of outsiders point out is that it, it sort of seems a bit unusual for a uh, a person like Kagan Klein in this case to be held and incarcerated for so long without trial. He was arrested in August 2020, uh, and now we're, we're getting into September 2022 and still nothing, and it's you know, likely not going to happen until 2023 at this point. So as prosecutors, like, how do you guys view that situation? Well, it's actually not that unusual. Um, You know, it varies from place to place. You got to remember, COVID's a big factor, too. It's hard to say exactly where we'd be if it weren't for COVID. Maybe things would have moved more quickly. Um, Another thing, different states have different rules. I mean, you have a constitutional right to a speedy trial, but how that's been effectuated is a little different depending on where you are. There are federal laws that give you certain speedy trial rights, but you know, this is a state action. So that's a little different. A lot of times people in state court, I mean, state cases can drag out for a long time. The other thing I will point out, and I don't know how long this has been the case, but it certainly seems as though it's been confirmed recently. If he is engaged in conversations with the prosecution, with the government uh, about possibly giving them some sort of supporting information or cooperating and pleading guilty, that is going to continue a trial. As long as those are good faith and everybody agrees we're working in good faith, we're working towards something, no judge is going to say, well, too bad, we're having the trial next week. And if you're somebody like him, the charges that he faces are serious. The evidence against him is weighty. The chance of him you know, prevailing at trial is possible, but it's unlikely. Anytime he serves in jail right now will count towards his eventual sentence. So for him, there's not as much impetus to get to trial as maybe some other defendant might have. Yeah, kind of to add to that, that's exactly right. Um, Typically what people don't understand is when a defendant is awaiting trial for a long time and it keeps getting pushed back, it's almost always at the request of the defendant or at least with uh, not over the objection of the defendant. Um, and this often happens here, especially if there's cooperation. It doesn't have to be that case. So oftentimes we'll see defendants run into court and say, uh, we waive our speedy trial rights because the discovery is voluminous, uh, discovery is ongoing. Um, we want to do our own investigation. Um, that could be a good defense, but these people are to the wind and we need to find them, judge. We need more time to develop our case. Almost always the judge is going to give the defendant their time because remember, the prosecution has up until the statute of limitations, kind of all the time in the world to prepare their case. The defendant doesn't have that. For the most part, the defendant doesn't know until they're charged and arrested. And so their investigation period starts then. And the judge recognizes that and will take that into account when granting the defendant's um, request to delay their trial. And what Brett says is a really, really good point. We often have um, under seal request to delay trial because we have a cooperator and they're under seal, not public to not public to the public because we don't want anyone to know they're cooperating. It could thwart the investigation. It could, you know, cause their cooperation to come to an end because if they're part of a gang, for example, the gang members will know that they have an insider who's a mole. Um, so it doesn't necessarily mean any of those things. But those are all very common reasons we see for delay in trial that has nothing to do with we don't have enough evidence against someone or we're holding them, you know, against their will for however much time because we don't have enough to go to trial. Now, I will say in this case, obviously, you know, it's hard to it's hard to know how much COVID has affected this. That's just an unknowable. Um, And it's hard to say just how much the local docket is just really full and so it's taken time to get to a trial having said all that i do think it tells you something in that with the amount of evidence the prosecution has ordinarily this kind of case might move more quickly than this one has which i do think leads leads you to believe that some sort of conversation is ongoing which seems to have been confirmed um just to piggyback off what alice said and not to get ahead of ourselves but one thing that i thought was unusual is that the order transferring him to the ISP's custody was unsealed so quickly. Um, It did not surprise me that it was filed under seal for all the reasons Alice said. It's kind of surprising to me that they unsealed it. I would have wanted to keep that sealed until everything had sort of been figured out. So don't really know what's going on there, but uh, it's not surprising that they sealed that initial order. 
what does it suggest to you when custody is temporarily transferred transferred from one uh, legal agency to another? Honestly, it's less exciting than what it may seem, and here's why. Almost everyone who is facing serious time is going to say at some point, if they want to cooperate at all, to their lawyer or law enforcement, I have information that's going to help you and you're really going to hear my story. For the most part, it's going to be just not true. Um, everyone's going to say, I heard over jailhouse calls. I know who murdered so-and-so. I can solve John Bonet. I mean, th this stuff happens all the time. But if the police have reason to think that what this person has to say really will be helpful in their case or another case, they will go through the transfer of custody, a writ, in order to have a proffer. A proffer itself doesn't say that much, except that you've gotten over the baseline of this isn't BS. There might actually be something there. But proffers are kind of no, it doesn't cost either party very much. What a proffer means is an interview. That's all it means. It's an interview where you're bound by some sort of contract. And the contract is typically something like um, person who's telling us information, you have to tell the truth. We can't use what you say against you but we can use that to follow up and investigate. And if we find independent things that's incriminating against you, we can use that against you. And we do not promise you anything in exchange. So the law enforcement actually holds all the power, even if they're ridding someone over to proffer, proffer is a fancy word for interview, they are still not saying, we're not, we're not gonna offer you anything on paper. We don't know yet because many, many times someone will get ridded over, they will proffer and it's everything law enforcement already knows. It's not helpful and they're not gonna get credit for it. Credit comes in many forms. It can come in the form of um, you know, credit in some way for the sentence that they're going to, the, the law enforcement is going to ask for in court. It could mean nothing. It could literally just look good for argument when your defense counsel is saying, see, this guy's turning his life around. He wants to help solve other cases. He's already, you know, cooperating. Judge, give him a lighter sentence. Um, and, and so I've given you kind of a broad range of things. All to say is proffers actually happen very often. As soon as you kind of get over the baseline of, I think this guy actually has something to say that might be helpful. Let's hear what he has to say. Law enforcement has to give nothing up and therefore it's not that huge of a deal to writ someone over for a proffer. So that's one side of the coin. I'm sure Brett will give you the other side. Well, you know, I, I just wanted to, to echo something else at the very beginning. I think it is always important to remember that just because someone is talking to the police doesn't mean they know anything. And a good example of that, a case we often bring up is Asia Degree. I don't know how familiar you guys are with that. I'd love to see you guys tackle it. But it's a, a young girl who disappeared in North Carolina under extremely strange circumstances, just a very unusual disappearance and unsolved to this day. And literally a couple of years ago, there was an inmate, local inmate in North Carolina, who said he had information on, on her disappearance and knew where she was buried. And people got really excited and we talked about it when we covered the case and we said everybody just pump the brakes because they're going to talk to him eventually and unfortunately most likely there will be nothing to this and sure enough at some point he's taken out of custody he's taken to whoever's investigating and they talk about it and it turns out he doesn't know anything um the difference here is i think it's pretty obvious or it seems there is something going on with klein or the Kleins and this case there is some connection here so it's not it's not your typical which is literally just some random person this happens all the time for us we'll get a call from some defense attorney and says hey i got a client he's in maybe he's in prison or maybe he's been indicted there's all sorts of things and he knows some information he thinks would be useful for you and usually the next step is okay fine let's get him on get him on the phone i'll give you an example i, I had this happen for a guy who was in prison he was serving a 40-year sentence and he didn't want to serve a 40-year sentence and so he gives us a call and says he has some information that we'd be interested in. Well, the first thing we did was he said, okay, fine, let's do a phone call. We're not going to waste our time with you unless you can give us some indication that you're not just one of these people who, who's making something up. And, you know, we did a phone call with him in the, he was in the infirmary because they wanted to make it look like he was just going to the doctor. They didn't want the, everybody else in the, in the prison to know. And then once he talked to us, we talked with our law enforcement partners and thought, yeah, this, this could be something. So at that point, we did exactly what they did in this case. We filed a writ and we had him transferred over to our custody. He was brought to us. Like, we don't go to them for several reasons. I mean, number one, you always want to maintain the, I don't really care about you or what you have to say. This is, I am doing you a favor. 
So if you want to come over here to where I am and tell me whatever it is you want to say, maybe I'll listen, right? Because uh, you never want them to have the upper hand. But you take them out of custody, you bring them wherever you, you are, and, and you have that conversation, and then you follow up. And you look for some, and that was exactly what happened in my case. Guy comes in, he gives us information. We send him away with no promises. We looked into it. We are able to corroborate some stuff. And sure enough, he got some time off his sentence, right? So everybody was happy. And I think that's what you're, you're seeing here is you have that initial connection. There's obviously some connection here. And one of, I would say one of two things happened. And, or let's say well, there's one of three things that happened. The first that I think would be the most hopeful, the most optimistic would be he told his defense attorney something that indicated he's finally willing to cooperate fully. His defense attorney calls the prosecution. They look into it and say, this is something we want to hear. They bring him over. He gives good information. That's, that's the most hopeful. The second would be this is prosecution-driven, which is less hopeful, just because whenever the prosecution is reaching out, it kind of means there's a little bit of desperation there because we don't like to reach out. Because like I said, we don't ever want to give up the upper hand. Could be that they've learned something. This is the second most hopeful. They've learned something. And now they can bring him in and say, look, we know this now. So this is your chance. If you're gonna if you're gonna tell us what you know, now's your chance. And if you don't tell us, it's off the table and you know, good luck in court. And, and just so you know, day, that's kind of that's called a reverse proffer. <laughs> right, exactly. When you when you've got the information, you bring them in and you tell it to them, and that's their opportunity to come clean. If they don't come clean, you get a trial. The third would be we're just sort of doing a reinvestigation. We've talked to you before and we just want to go over it again with you. And so we brought you out here to talk. And that's really the least hopeful. I mean, stuff can come from that, but that would be sort of the least hopeful circumstance. And obviously, nobody but the people involved know exactly why this happened, though indications by the defense attorney that they are that they are working towards something would seem to mean that hopefully we're in a situation one here, not a situation three. A weight loss journey can feel like a lonely struggle. But it doesn't have to be. For so many of us, lifestyle changes like deciding to lose weight, adopting a nutritious diet and taking up fun exercises are all about putting our own health and wellness first. But it can be really hard to know where to begin or how to keep the weight off once we've seen some progress. Quick fixes like soup diets and juice cleanses are unsustainable. There's a much better way to embark on this journey that over 200,000 people have already chosen. We're talking about the Roe Body Program. Here's how it works. Roe gives you access to one of the most popular weight loss shots on the market. Their Roe Body Program then sets up a comprehensive weight loss program tailored to your specific lifestyle, health status, and goals. In addition to the weekly shot, you get one-on-one -on -one coaching with a registered nurse. That can help you adopt and stick with lifestyle changes like exercise routines and nutritious diets. It's a comprehensive program that sees participants lose 15 to 20% of their weight in a year on average. But the real benefit is that you keep that weight off. This is weight loss at its most sustainable. With Roe, the average weight loss is 15 to 20 percent of your weight in one year in conjunction with healthy lifestyle changes. EMI and other eligibility criteria apply. Go to roe.co slash msheet. Sign up today and you'll pay just $99 for your first month and $145 a month after that. Medication costs are separate. Go to roe.co slash msheet. That's roe.co slash msheet. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Absolutely. I, I wanted to I wanted to touch upon something Brett mentioned and, and just, you know, obviously might be some speculation here, but you mentioned the whole 
sealing and then unsealing the uh, the, the kind of transfer of custody element of it. And and we were just curious, like, would there be a, a strategic reason for law or for the prosecution and, and, and the law enforcement to possibly take that route? Or is that something that's just very unusual and it's kind of hard to know what they were thinking? So it's this is total speculation. I mean, there's a couple things that could be going on. Number one, it could be a matter of state law. There may be a rule that says sealed things can only remain sealed for so long until they have to be unsealed. I mean, there are states that have much more open record records because of sunshine laws and they want the press and everyone else to be able to report on this. And there's a first amendment interest could have something like that. I don't know Indiana law well enough to know. Definitely not that. <laughs> okay. Right. Well, it's not that. Well, if it's not that, then I, I can't think of a strategic reason. I, I mean, maybe Alice has a better idea. Yeah, I can't think of a strategic reason, except typically what governs uh, whether something is sealed or not sealed is a need for it to be sealed. So typically, if someone's going to challenge that it's sealed, let's say the subject of the warrant can actually say, um, this doesn't need to be sealed. And that part is all sealed, actually. So that way it's not public to anybody. And if the government cannot articulate an ongoing reason uh, to need to keep that document sealed, the court may go ahead and grant the unsealing of it, or the government can move to unseal it. Either way, you can do it proactively um, before the court asks you to do it if there is no reason to unseal. So they could have been forced to unseal because they knew they had to because there was no reason. Maybe that information was already out in the public. Maybe at this point, the information was stale. Maybe they couldn't show that their investigation would be thwarted with the unsealing. That's all I can think of because I can't think of a strategic reason that you would want more information out there when you have seemingly so little information that's that you already have. Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, Honestly, the more the public knows, the more difficult it gets to do an investigation just in general. Us in the podcast world, we love information. Us in the law enforcement world, it makes it more difficult for all the reasons you can imagine. More cooks in the kitchen, more false tips because people think they know more information and they're connecting dots that don't exist and they can kind of jam up your your hotlines. Um, and so that's why there's always this tension between information to the public or not. Um, but you know, coming from the law enforcement world, it's just true. The more information out there, the harder it is to do your job covertly. I'd like to uh, zoom out for a minute. One comment we've gotten from people is, you know, they see these comments from Kagan Klein's defense attorney talking about negotiations and process, and people say, why do people like Kagan Klein even get deals at all? Can you speak about the role of plea bargains and deals in the justice system and why they're needed? Yeah, so first thing, no defendant is actually entitled to a plea deal. Um, everyone is entitled to go to trial. But on the flip side, the prosecution never has to offer or accept a plea offer. Now, there are many reasons for the taxpayers and for ju- judicial economy and prosecutorial resources to go plea deals, even if you have all the evidence in the world. Um Cases are expensive to try. They're time consuming. If you have victims, especially if they're underage or unwilling victims, they have to relive the worst days of their life, not just once, not just twice. They they have to be prepped. They have to be interviewed. And then they have to testify in court because we have the confrontation clause of the the Constitution that they get to be confronted um, uh, by the person uh, that's accusing them, the defendant does. And all of these things are things to take into account. Usually you will be speaking with the victims. If we have victims who are very opposed to a plea deal, we take that very heavily because we're trying to vindicate societal you know, justice, but also justice for the individual victims. But think about you know, what that's like for all the victims, all the witnesses that you have to bring to court. You know, Brett and I just came off of a month long trial. Um, that wasn't one month long. That was two years of our lives. That was two years of taxpayer dollars, two years of flying around the country on taxpayer dollars away from our families, talking with lots of witnesses who didn't really want to talk to us, and then bringing lawyers from all over the country into court um, for four weeks. I mean, the taxpayer burden there is immense, not to mention for about two and a half years, Brett and I couldn't focus our attention on other types of cases. And so there are lots of reasons. I will say cases probably 
didn't get prosecuted that could have in that time because we were in trial. We physically could not, you know, go to grand jury because we were in trial. And of course, you know, they'll get prosecuted and whatnot. But there are lots of things to keep in mind as to why you go plea deal, because once you sign a plea deal, that case, you know, there's a lot that goes into it, but essentially is over. You can start moving on to your next cases. Um, you could be saving yourself years of resources um, and also kind of a lot of heartache um, for victims. And um, those plea deals also often have something very, very important. And that is an appeal waiver. When you go to trial, you can always appeal if you lose the defendant. And that means a case can drag on for years and years and years. And there could be no finality for a very long time for the government or for the victims. A plea deal, because you're signing you know, an agreement you're also agreeing, I'm not going to appeal this except for some very limited circumstances like prosecutorial misconduct or ineffective assistance of counsel. But other than that, you can't just say, I changed my mind. I didn't really like that 40 year deal that I, you know, pled to. I'm going to appeal this to, you know, the circuit court and say I should get something much less. You don't have to do that. And that saves even more resources and again, gives that level of finality. So those are some things to think about as to why. Even some cases that seem so, so terrible, if you can extract a deal that makes sure this person is, you know, out of societal harm for a long time and um, uh, can conserve resources and also bring finality to a terrible situation for a lot of people, um, it could be actually a much better choice than going all the way to trial where the jury is a black box. They could nullify. They could just be like, wow, this is some of the most horrendous things we've seen, but stick it to the government. We hate the government. So this person gets off no matter how horrendous they are. We've seen it happen and it can happen. So certainty and resources are are, are kind of big, big um, factors. One of the things we always point out is your best witnesses don't come from the church choir. <laughs> now, when you have these cases, a lot of times, if you have some really bad people, you need really bad people to help you convict them. And you just want your really bad people, you help convict them to not be as bad as the ones you're convicting. You know, I mean, think about like mob prosecutions. A lot of hitmen have gone not free necessarily, but have had lower sentences so they could get the boss. And in this case, if what he's offering is, I can give you who killed these two girls, that is a deal you're going to make. And there's a couple things to remember. Number one, it doesn't necessarily mean he's, he's going to go free. Well, the first thing I would say, that people need to remember, and this is not something we want to think about. He's a bad guy, but there are a lot of people just like him out there. He's not the worst person that the people who investigate these sex crimes have ever seen. They they deal with people like, just like him all the time. So from their perspective, yeah, he's a monster who knows, needs to go to jail, but he's not the worst monster. And we'll have another monster next week. So if we can get these, you know, whoever killed these two girls, let's do it. The second thing is, it, it doesn't necessarily mean he's going to go free. He he's facing a lot. I mean, he has a lot of charges against him. You can knock off some charges. You can agree to a lower sentence so that he doesn't serve the rest of his life in jail. Or maybe, you know, 20 years instead of 40 or 15 years instead of 20. It might be something he wants to serve his prison sentence in a certain place closer to family. I mean, there's all sorts of things that you can agree to as part of your deal. And like Alice said, sometimes the deal is you will plead guilty you know, I, depending on how the sentencing works in Indiana, they probably have some sort of sentencing guidelines. The government might agree. We'll go for the bottom. And you can argue that you were so helpful for that judge. And when you get in front of the judge, you can say, look, judge, we don't have an agreement. They didn't promise my client anything other than the, the bare minimum. That's all they promised him. But you know what? He was truthful and he, he told everything. And that shows he has remorse. It shows he can be rehabilitated. It shows he could have a future. Like, there's all sorts of reasons to enter into a plea deal other than absolute immunity. And I feel like most people, when they hear plea deal, they think, oh, it's going to be, it's absolute immunity. He won't, he won't be punished at all for these crimes. And I seriously we almost doubt. never give That's absolute immunity. <laughs> yeah. I mean, almost never. Like almost never. <laughs> that makes a lot of sense. I, you both kind of touched upon this. Uh, and, and this is something that we've kind of also has been made it difficult to report on on some of this especially around kagan's charges just because they're so horrific and i think child sexual abuse materials cases really hit home for people and it's just horrifying that what proliferates on the internet and i'm just wondering in your experience as prosecutors or just being aware of other colleagues you know kind of cases 
Are there any unique challenges presented by CSAM related cases in this era of the internet where it's so much is done on the dark web and it's sort of, you know, not, you don't have, you have to put a phone or a computer in somebody's line of sight as opposed to maybe relying on physical evidence in, in a traditional sexual crime? Well, I'll tell you what's what's kind of terrifying about them is the people that we catch are the dumb ones. And there's a lot of dumb ones, right? I mean, people who will download child pornography off the internet without a VPN, just straight out of their computer, you know, and then they'll delete it and send it to the recycle bin and think that got rid of it. I mean, those people are so easy to catch, right? I mean, they, the people you're talking about, the people who are really sophisticated, on the dark web number one they're really sophisticated number two they're some of the worst abusers because a lot of times in order to become a part of that community you have to produce this material so you can't just show up and decide you want to see it because they're not going to let you into their club if you're some if you're an agent if you're a federal agent or a state agent so they want to see new stuff they've never seen before so a lot of times you have these people who are not only viewing it but they're going out and producing it so they can get in um and those are those are I mean, I'll say this, there's a lot of focus on those. I mean, there's a lot of resources that goes into it. That's the good thing. Um, law enforcement is will sometimes be a step ahead and sometimes be a step behind. I'm not going to say we're always a step behind because we're not. There's a lot of times where law enforcement will get a step ahead and then there'll be a big bust and they'll shut down one of these networks and they'll arrest a bunch of people. But then the other networks see what happened and they realize what the hole was and they plug it. So it's a constant sort of battle here. And I think people would be shocked at the number of people out there who are who are involved in this stuff and they come from every single walk of life i mean you look you, you see this guy and you're like pedophile right i mean like a picture of him he 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 does not he does not you wouldn't let your kids run around with that guy right but that is that is rare i mean usually these are people who i've seen colonels in the military i've seen pastors i've just everybody from every walk of life can be one of these people. I don't want to you know, scare everybody to death and lock your kids in a closet and never let them out. But sometimes that's what I want to do with my kids because it is really scary. Yeah. I mean, again, this is not <laughs> to scare everyone about child exploitation, but the hardest part is it's like drinking from a fire hose. We are not going to catch everyone. And the hardest thing is to prioritize and get the worst of the worst. And those are the hands-on offenders and the travelers. Travelers are people who make contact usually so through social media across state lines to travel to usually sexually exploit a child. Um, and oftentimes it's through their parents. And that's what's devastating is these are almost always perpetrated by someone who knows these children. Um, and honestly, um, the only thing we have over going to trial with a lot of these people, because the, honestly, the Internet makes it easy to prosecute because we can get so much of what they have. Forensics has come a long way. You can delete it. You can use VPNs. We, there's ways to get around that so we can catch you and catch you with a lot of it. The hard, the, the one thing we have going over them is these people don't care, right? This is what they do for fun is they don't want to showing those videos and those pictures in court of what they're doing to these children because some people in their lives don't know that they do it. And that's basically the only thing we have holding uh, you know, holding over them. Um, so this Klein guy, like, honestly, he's a dime a dozen. The stack on our desks um, of child exploitation compared to just about any cr other crime, it, it like pales in comparison, which is terrifying. We have small children. We're, I'm probably going to lock my children up like forever because I don't want them to ever be exposed to this. And they look like everyone you see on the street. Um, so yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm glad I'm glad this is shining light on it, honestly, because because of the proliferation of it, people need to know um, that it's out there um, and to take measures to protect their kids and themselves. But it also shines light on the fact that this guy is unfortunately not that special. Yeah, the other problem we have is law enforcement burnout on it. I mean, you have you have some people who who are just absolutely dedicated to this stuff and this is their career and they they do it. But a lot of people come in, they try to do it, they do it for a few years, they prosecute the cases for a few years, and they just can't do it anymore. They can't, you know, they can't look at the photos, they can't watch the videos, which you have to do. If you're going to prosecute the case, you got to be familiar with all the evidence. And, and it's just, I mean, it just burns into your soul, right? I mean, you can't, you never get it out of your head. So it, that, is, that is also a big problem. Alice is right, though. I mean, most of these cases never go to trial. They never go to trial because 
these people do tend to be embarrassed, at least for some people in their family, about what they have. And the evidence is so bad. You know, you, you have a thousand photographs and videos. It only takes one and it's over. You show that, you show that to the jury and, and that person's done. And going to trial means you can forget about having any leniency from the judge. Um, you know, you, this, this case I know is set for trial, I think, in early 2023. Um, number one, I don't think it'll go to trial in 2023, particularly if, if these if these things are true, that they're sort of working on things, that'll get pushed. And even if it doesn't, I mean, even if all law enforcement discussion breaks down and they're like, never mind, we're going to trial, see you at trial, I think eventually he'll be guilty. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Audible is the destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Allow your imagination to be piqued by stories that are brought to life through captivating sound design, eerie soundscapes, and dynamic performances. As an Audible member, you'll be able to keep your heart rate up month after month because you can choose one title a month to keep from the entire catalog, including the latest bestsellers and new releases. If you're in the mood for a shocking psychological thriller, check out None of This is True by Lisa Jewell. Embrace brand new exclusive thrillers from bestselling authors who are guaranteed to keep you gripped. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash thrill or text thrill to 500-500. That's audible.com slash thrill or text thrill to 500-500. You can host the best backyard barbecue. When you find a professional on Angie to make your backyard the best around. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside. Repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. You know, I wanted to step way back a little bit, away from the keg and climb thing. This is another thing that we reported on, um, you know, and, 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 and one thing with the Delphi case that I'm sure, you know, everyone who kind of has covered it notices is that you know, something new comes out and then the media runs with it, runs pretty hard. Sometimes, how do I say, nuance is lost. Uh, and, yeah. and, and one thing I'm specifically thinking of is the Ron Logan uh, probable cause affidavit. And yes, let me ask a, a leading question <laughs> about that. Is a probable cause affidavit for a search warrant written by a law officer is that a place where you would expect to find a dispassionate discussion of all of the strengths and weaknesses <laughs> of a case? No. Good leading question. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's done in good faith, right? I mean, it, it, it's done in good faith, and it's a statement of things the officer knows or believes to be true in good faith. And so it's not as if he's making things up, but... It probable cause is, is a is a pretty low bar. It's it's a it's a very low bar. And it just means you have sort of a reasonable belief that evidence might be in the place it's searched. And the reason you have this reasonable belief is because you have these factors you're gonna point to. And I mean we can get into the Ron Logan thing specifically, but I mean Al Alice and I have done a lot of these. I don't know if you have more thoughts on that. I mean an affidavit cause. is it is a piece of advocacy because you are you are arguing to the judge, I do have cause for probable cause, and you're putting your name to it. I mean, that is very important for um, a law enforcement officer to sign their name to it because they do have to appear before the judge and they have to raise their right hand and they swear to everything written in that document. So it is all in good faith. They have reason to believe all of it, but they are listing everything that leads them to believe there's probable cause. They are not writing a pros and cons list of what there is, right? They're not going to leave out any information. If any of that information cuts against any of the evidence they have to go towards probable cause, they have to let the judge know. But they don't have to list all the reasons that there could be other reasons for it. Probable cause is just right down here. And they're saying, here's all the reasons that I have. Here's all my investigation. And of course, all my investigation has been towards this end. I'm trying to lead to the next step and I need this next step. And here's everything I've done to lead up to this point. So. You know, it, it is an argument to the judge that 
I have probable cause. Um, and you'll see these, you know, everyone has different ways of writing their affidavits. Um, but we do emphasize that, you know, you, you have to swear to it. Uh, but at the same time, it is a piece of advocacy for showing the judge this is why you should sign this warrant. And it's also it is a window. It is definitely a window into law enforcement thinking, but it's a window into law enforcement thinking at the time the affidavit was drafted. And it is based on the evidence they have at the time the affidavit was drafted. So while it can be useful if, af, you know, if everybody who ever had an affidavit drafted against them in a search warrant, was was guilty you know you'd have a lot you'd have a lot more people in jail right i mean a lot of times the police have a good faith basis and these are our arguments and they look in a place they don't find anything and they realize later on you know what that person didn't have anything to do with it we were totally misled or just based on sort of what we were thinking at the time that said the way we thought this investigation was going but now with more information we no longer you know with all the information we have now guess what we wouldn't have been able to get a probable cause warrant we wouldn't have been able to put that in the affidavit because we know so much more now so i think one of the problems with that one was it 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 was back right after and, and correct me if i'm wrong you guys know the case facts of the case much better than i do but it was right after the murders i mean we're talking this is one of the mo one of the immediate things they it was an obvious person to look at um i don't think there's any question that it was a good angle to go but it doesn't seem like it really led anywhere so looking back today at an affidavit from five years ago and saying, well, look at all this stuff they had. Well, yeah, that's what they were thinking at the time. You know, if they issued that tomorrow, yes, that'd be huge news and we should all be talking about it and, and breaking it down. But it's interesting and it's sort of, it is a window into law enforcement thinking. But it beyond that, particularly given its age, I, I don't think it's that helpful at all. Yeah, I think we would, we would tend to agree. I think candidly, when we first reported on that, we were, uh, we editorialized in our coverage of it, saying that, you know, we think this is a, a window into the case in March 2017, a month after it happened. And we think it's obvious that law enforcement moved on. We had a very um, maybe overly academic uh, kind of view of it, of kind of like, this is interesting because it tells us about the investigation. I think the media narrative that kind of sprang from it turned into more of like, we have footage of Ron Logan and here's the bridge guy, like, look at them, mm -hmm. you know? And, and, and so we were kind of like, okay, the good lesson to always editorialize when you're, when you're talking to people, I think. Um, but they uh, made a great headline for a lot of newspapers, right? I mean, they were able to write, write a great headline out of that. And that's what they, they tend to do. And, and look, sure I think they, they did understand your nuance, but that doesn't yeah. sell headlines, right? So <laughs> I'm sure yeah. in paragraph 20 on the third page of the article, they said all those things, you know, it just took them a while to get there. But yeah, no, I, if you guys have any other thoughts about the Ron Logan um, uh, documents, though, we'd be curious to get them. Because, yeah, as we said, we found it very interesting. I mean, from, from us piecing together the timeline, because what we really are reporting on is the investigation itself and, and, and you know, not the Internet conspiracies and, and things like that. Like we were kind of trying to put everything in order and say, you know, sort of why is this taken so long and what's going on possibly? Um, and, and one thing we noticed was, you know, K, the Klein household is rated uh, about a week after the murders, uh, March of 2017, Logan. And then we come back to the Kleins circa 2019, 2020, is that fair to say? And so we just, I don't know, we kind of thought that was interesting that um, the Kleins were sort of publicly, or Kegan Klein was sort of publicly cleared so quickly after the raid on his house. Is it unusual in your experience for law enforcement personnel to spontaneously publicly clear someone immediately after a search of the premises because that's what happened in this case fbi agent bob ramsey told the press that kagan klein was cleared well, i don't know i mean uh, is there a reason the fbi was leading the sort of public discussion in this case i mean that, the fbi's role in this has never been entirely clear to me about it's what not, exactly yeah. you know I, I mean number one i think there's no such, I don't know that there's sort of standard operating policy here. Like, I don't think you can say, oh, they would never do that, or they would do that all the time. I think in high profile cases, a lot of times you want to clear people because that, sh if you know for certain that they are not involved, that shadow that hangs over you, if you're a suspect, you know, just go back to the Atlanta bombing, right? I mean, that's sort of the, the big example of this. I mean, you know, you, you can, and we've seen that in this case, you know, I mean, you've, there are people who think, who think to this day that it's the sheriff 
right? I mean, Tobe Lesby gets all sorts of hate because there's people who to this day think it's him because he foolishly said that he was a suspect at one point, right? Probably shouldn't have said that. <laughs> but so I don't know why they would do that. I, I don't know if there was some strategy behind that. I don't know why the FBI was doing that as opposed to ISP, because this has always been an ISP investigation. On F- and the FBI is assisting. There's no question about that. And the FBI will often assist in complex investigations when they're asked to do so. Um, but so I, I don't know why he was he was doing that. And, and it's impossible really to know whether there was a strategy behind that or if it was just a tactical mistake. Yeah, we uh, we've reached out to him to sort of get some clarity. We don't really understand the FBI's. We, we've we've heard things basically, and we've reported on certain mistakes that were made that we confirmed by the FBI. But of course, you know it's a complicated case, lots of different agencies, and we can also understand that law enforcement personnel are humans, and and you can maybe just you know human error could be a factor, and and that's not necessarily surprising given that uh, you know there, there were so many directions I imagine that they were going in. And, and I mean, I look, I say this sometimes, and people get mad at me for it. And I'm not saying that I've ever personally been a part of this, but people should not just assume that the the police always tell you everything or they always tell you the truth. Like if they had a strategic reason to clear him publicly, if they thought this is the guy, we need him to slip up. We need him to think we're not watching. We need him to think because we searched him, but we didn't find what we needed, right? We thought we had him, but then we went in, we didn't find what we needed and we need something else. We need him to slip up and lead us to more evidence. Then maybe you tell the public, yep, cleared him. And it's like, sorry guys, we had a lot to I mean, if if that's what it took to get the killer, I don't know that they wouldn't necessarily do that. It's been interesting. And yeah, I think there's a lot of, there's been so much speculation about police strategy about this. And and sometimes, you know, you, sometimes you have people, it's kind of almost like a litmus test for how you feel about the police. If you don't like the police, then they're just inept bumblers. And then if you do like the police, it's all part of some grand chess strategy. And it's like, you know, I think both of us are sort of like, you know, I guess we'll, we'll sort of see when the facts wash out and hopefully that will be eventually um and hopefully there will be questions answered i guess my thing is like as you know a resident of indiana i would want to know you know what uh what kept um keg and klein from being prosecuted at least for the child sexual abuse materials in 2017 obviously that's not why the police were talking to him they were looking into this high profile case and that you know certainly is understandable that that uh took precedent but my understanding is typically i would think like if there's other serious crimes uncovered in an investigation, you know, those would still be kind of So it really honestly depends, especially if you know they're tied to other um, illegal conduct, because you typically want to bring it all at once. Um, And once you indict a case, you can't use the grand jury to continue investigating that case. And so if you indict too early, you may actually leave important investigative tools on the table. Um, And so this happens, unfortunately, not infrequently. Like we find out some big you know, drug dealer, um, moving a lot of drugs and we can absolutely pop him for like massive amounts of meth and cocaine, but we don't because we think he's also part of some like very dangerous crew that's, you know, murdering people up and down, you know, the coast or something. Um, we would wait to bring the drug case, even though we could stem the drug, you know, uh, importation right now, but that would then thwart, you know, hundreds of lives or whatever that they have at risk. And so if they know, and they know he's not currently offending because he can't. Maybe they know that they've cut him off or they're watching him. And the next time he tries to lay hands on a kid, then then they'll fly in, even if it thwarts their other investigation. They usually have an eye on it. And if they have a, a control of the situation and no one else is getting hurt, they may hold off on indicting so that they don't thwart their other you know, investigation at the same time. Um, so it doesn't mean the police aren't looking at it, but I bet you they probably had him being tracked all over the internet and making sure that he wasn't doing that type of activity. Yeah, there's a lot of people out there who are committing crimes right now who who the police know about, and they are preparing cases against them and they're getting ready to move on them, and it may be a while. You know, it's, it's certainly not the case that as soon as you realize somebody's committing a crime, well, we got to go arrest them. In fact, it's very much the opposite. I mean, you, you see this, as Alice said, unless there is sort of an immediate threat, you know, when you when you have a wire on somebody, when you're listening to every conversation they have and that person is a, a high-profile drug dealer, they're going to say a lot of things on there that reveal a lot of crimes. And some of them are going to scare you if you're listening to them. But pretty much unless they say, okay, I'm going to go kill X now, right? The police aren't going to immediately arrest them. Now, if that happens, then unfortunately, despite the fact that you've got this ongoing investigation, you may spend a lot of time setting up, 
you're going to go have to interdict that, right? <laughs> you can't let them do that. So I think Alice is, is 100% right. If they knew, if they knew he was committing these crimes, these one set of crimes, but they felt like they could sort of monitor it and control it and leaving him out was, was the way to go, then I can understand them doing that. We would like to thank Brett and Alice for talking with us this week. Their podcast, The Prosecutors, is available on all major platforms. They've covered quite a few cases, and they always bring something unique to the table. It's definitely worth checking out. To our surprise, we've gotten a number of requests from people saying they would like a way to help financially support our efforts with the show. So, if you are interested, we are relaunching a Patreon page, which you can find at www.patreon.com slash murdersheet. Join us there for two live video question and answer sessions each month. You can ask us anything, suggest new cases for us to look at, or even offer ideas for new leads for us to follow. If Patreon is not your thing, you can buy us a coffee at www.buymeacoffee.com slash murdersheet. Thanks for the interest. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Murder Sheet. As always, thanks to Kevin Tyler Greenlee, who composed the music for The Murder Sheet, and who you can find on the web at kevintg.com. To keep up with the latest on The Murder Sheet, please make sure to follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Murder Sheet, and on Facebook at MSheet Podcast, or by searching Murder Sheet. If you enjoy listening to The Murder Sheet, please leave us a five-star review to help us gain more exposure. And send tips, suggestions, and feedback to murdersheet at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening.